0: Let me pray. Our loving Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word and that we know you because you speak to us and by your Holy Spirit you reveal yourself to us through your word. And so we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would indeed do that and we would understand more about your amazing plans for this world and for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But one of the things that I know that uh, I'm used to my kids saying when we go on holidays is, Dad, what are we doing today? And there are usually the, res- the answers are at one stream, extreme or the other. On the one hand, it may well be that I take them to the very detailed spreadsheet that I've worked out where we say we're going to this at 8am and then we're going to go into this place by 10.30 and we're going to get this bus at this time and travel. And so when we uh, did an extended journey uh, for our long service leave, there, there was a six-page spreadsheet in about six point, and it was just bit by bit by, and we squeezed all these things in. It was great. So people could, in the family could say, so what are we doing today? I'd say, haven't you got a copy of the spreadsheet? And they'd go, oh, okay, yes, Dad. But there are other kinds of holidays where we have a little bit of a catch, catch cry, which is no plants, no plants. What are we doing today? No plants. And we'll just have no plants, we'll see what comes up, we'll just wait and see. Uh, last week, or was it the week before, the week before the Holiday Kids Club, uh, the McNeil's had a holiday and we went away with a, another family as well uh, on a houseboat down in Lake Eildon, which I think I've mentioned to a few of you. Lake Eildon's down in Melbourne, it's well-renowned now for being the place where Bonnie Doon is located in the castle where they are out fishing for carp, anyway. Why do I tell you this? Um, Well, it's because our holiday on this houseboat with another family was sort of somewhere between the no plans and yes we need plans thing because when you turn up the houseboat, you've got to have all of your shopping done and everything you need needs to be brought on it because it's just such a pain to have to go and dock and you don't know how to do that so you bump into things too many times. So you really wanted to be planning things very carefully. If I was doing the plans, then I'd be there saying exactly how many loaves of bread and how many litres of milk and all these different things so that we could have our family, the four of us, and then there was another family of three, and we'd have it all sorted. But, but my, my darling wife, in her, in her wisdom, basically said to the other darling wife, um, listen, look... McNeil's, we'll look after breakfasts, we'll do two dinners, you do three dinners, and then you guys do lunches and we'll sort of share snacks. How's that sound? And we'll take a, yeah, a few things here. And they're like, that's fine. So I dutifully get sent off to Aldi to go shopping and I'm told to get all these different things. Hugo and I come back with, a, with two trolleys, $540 worth of Aldi stuff, just for our little bit because we you do not want to miss out on making sure you've got enough food. Well, they do the same thing, don't they? And so we turn up with what must be a $1000 worth of groceries because just to be sure. We had 48 liters of milk. That's that's a lot of milk for seven people for 5 days. We we they brought they brought 12 loaves of bread because they're doing lunches and we brought 12 loaves of bread because we're doing breakfasts. It's like oh my goodness. <laughs> And so there we were at the very end of the trip with our trolleys bringing it all back and driving it back up to Sydney. Well, suffice to say, we've, we've done our shopping for the next few weeks up in Sydney, so none of it went to waste. But when you make these plans, you, you get excited by them, I think. Well, I do, because I, I can then say things went to plan, but sometimes they don't go to plan. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, on the on the houseboat, we had planned that on Sunday at 3 o'clock, we'd be able to pick up some bait at the wharf just before we went off on our boat. Well, turns out that they close at 2 o'clock, don't they? So we spent our entire time fishing with bread. No, not that we were short of it by any means. <laughs> and then we caught a carp, and uh, that was not useful really for anything except for bait. And then we... God, we, we were, but the plans weren't exactly what we had expected. There are certain events where you have lots and lots of plans, whether it's something like a wedding or a major holiday or a major event in your life, and you want to, one of the, the things that helps you work out whether it's been a success or not is whether or not it has followed the plans. And you can say it successfully went through and did all the things it was supposed to do. In the Bible, we have a whole series of things where a where things appear not to go to plan. And I think you've got to say that the story of Joseph, which we celebrated together in this last week in the Egyptian adventure, is a classic one of those. But there are many other times in life when we have things that don't go to plan. I woke up this morning to hear about Typhoon Hagabus in Japan that's now hit there. So far only two people have been killed and 62 injured, which seems extremely low, praise God. I thought it was going to be much more than that. Maybe it may well be one of those things where the plans... Well, nobody planned really to have such a massive typhoon hit, but it did. And our hospitals are full of places, full of people who did not plan to be sick and unwell, and yet now they find themselves there, not really according to their own plan. And every day funeral directors meet people who did not plan that week to be organising a funeral for their family members. Our plans don't always turn out like we would like them to. And you've got to think with Joseph that there's an overlap there as well. Uh, we, we know for the story of Joseph in the opening uh, in the, uh, the chapters 37 through to 50 in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, that, that Joseph was a man who was singled out by his father. You, you know the story, you've seen the musical, that he was given a coat of many colours, And it made his 11 brothers very jealous. And so as a response to him saying about the code and also talking about his dreams where they would bow down to him, they got extremely jealous. Uh, They said, "Well, well, we should kill him. They said, no, let's not do that. Let's cover his cloth in blood and throw it down a hole and then we'll sell him off to slavery in Egypt. And so from that point onwards, tragedy hit. No doubt Joseph was thinking that he was going to have a normal kind of successful life, certainly being made out to be a special kid because of the way that he was treated that way by his father. But now he finds himself off in, um, in the place of Egypt, which is just so far away from Canaan. And then he ends up getting promoted to a high place, a high position, and then the, the leading official's wife accused him of harming her, which he didn't do, and that ended up in prison. And so he's gone from being a slave to now being a prisoner, and none of it was according to plan. And then whilst he was in there, there was a situation where he was able to interpret some dreams. He interpreted the dream for the baker and also for the servant. And the whole plan was that when the servant was released from prison, he would tell his pharaoh his that that. That, um, that, that Joseph was in prison and was a wise man and needed to be released from that, and what's more, that he was innocent. But the servant forgot, and so poor old Joseph remained in jail, thinking, this cannot be going to plan. Well, the plan was that he would eventually be released, and so he was able to interpret a dream that had been troubling the pharaoh, A famous dream. There were two parts to it. Uh, the first one, there were seven fat cows and then seven thin cows. And then the thin cows ate the fat cows. And then there was the second part of the dream where there were the seven thick sheaths of wheat and then seven thin, scrawny ones. And then the thin, scrawny ones ate the fat ones but didn't get fat. And the pharaoh was really troubled. He couldn't work out what there was meaning. And so then he said, To someone can interpret his dreams and that reminded the servant that there was this guy in prison, got him out and he interpreted the dream and he said, you know what it's about? It says that there's going to be seven really productive years on the land. Big cows, big wheat, all the big stuff and it's going to be enough, more than enough for us. But it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And so if we are wise, what we will do is we will store up in the first seven years So that when the bad seven years hit, we will have enough there for us so that we can survive. And the Pharaoh thought that Joseph was a winner. And so he said, you are going to be my second in charge. And so now Joseph ends up as the second most powerful person in the whole of Egypt. And he is the one who has the special controls to make sure that these plans go exactly as the dream said. And that is that in the seven years of plenty, they'd be able to store it up well for the seven years of famine. And in all of this, we then get, in the famine, Joseph's family head down to Egypt to try and buy some food. And when they do, they finally get in contact with Joseph. They don't immediately recognise him because it's been a long time. And Joseph doesn't punish them as he could, but he showed them mercy and he ended up making it possible so that they would not be that the the, the whole famine would not hit them to the point of extinguishing them, but they were able to survive it. And we see a plan that was, if you said to Joseph, this is what is going to happen to you, do you believe it? You'd say, I cannot imagine for a second that happening. And yet that is exactly what happened. As I was standing here last night, I was talking to all of the kids in, in one of the plays, and it was brought to our attention that a part of this plan is that one of Joseph's 11 brothers was a young bloke called Judah. And Judah ended up being the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. And so even though we have this strange sort of microcosm of both family relations that were so poor, and then this wider sort of political, social situation where there was the famine and so forth in Egypt, those things then led as their sort of cogs in the wheel that would bring us to the point where Jesus Christ himself was born, and God worked through all those plans. Now, what do we learn from all of this? Well, it's clear that even though evil, was hap- evil occurred, God used it to save people. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says, from Joseph to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. They had done a horrible thing. They had hurt not only Joseph but his father. And yet now through that evil, and let's call it evil because it was, God used that as he had always planned so that they would be saved and in due course Jesus would be born. God is in control of everything. There's never a time when he's not in control of everything, and that's a really comforting thing. I still have memories of when I was really young and there'd be a big thunderstorm or something had happened and a dream made me really upset, and I would run into my mum and dad's room and and be there and seek comfort and knew that they were going to say, it's all going to be okay. They were lying, of course, because it's not always going to be okay. But that's what you say when you're a parent. But to have that nurture there where you hold them there and say, you, you can feel comfort in this moment of trial and this moment of sadness. I comfort you. We go through things in life that, that seem out of control, and yet we know that God is in control and that he will comfort us by the knowledge of his control as well. Which brings us now to God's plan for Jesus. Jesus. You see, it's actually not Joseph's brothers who do the most wicked act of all times. It's those who killed Jesus, those who handed him over, who betrayed him, who led him to the cross. Their evil act was to kill Jesus. Imagine what it must have been like to have seen Jesus walking around in that first century and to see his face. We don't have any record of his face, and that's probably a good thing because we bow down to it unhelpfully. But to see his face and know his name and hear his voice. Did he have a high voice or a low voice? Or what was his voice like? Did he speak fast or did he speak slow? We don't know these things. Was he tall? But he was a real person and you would have known him and there was, would have been something about him, his sinlessness, his holiness, his deep compassion for those who were going through hard times, who were sinful, who were out of fellowship with the Father. And yet this man was the one that was handed over to the authorities and killed. And people did a terribly evil thing by killing him. But the same thing applies. They meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. I know that we've looked through the book of Acts more recently and we we get back into the next big second half next week, which I'm really looking forward to. But I felt as we were reviewing this section of Joseph, I really needed to bring us to chapter 2 of Acts, which we looked at about two months ago. Because there's this verse where we we hear that Peter talked about Jesus' life. In chapter 2, in his famous speech to Pentecost, at Pentecost at the steps there at the temple, he says, verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God had planned for it, but they did evil. Both of those go hand in glove. And we scratch our heads to work out how, but the fact is there. Jesus' death was part of God's plan. But what happened next was amazing, verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus came back to life, and death could not hold him down, for he is risen. See, Many people saw that Jesus was alive, and after he came back to life, he returned to heaven to be with his Father. Verse 33, we read that he was exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus rules the world. They tried to kill him, they did kill him, and then he rose from the dead and now he rules the world. And so verse 36, chapter 2 of Acts, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God's plan was completely clear. Jesus died because it was God's plan for him to die. And it's a fresh reminder that God uses bad things to do good. See, we often think, "Why is my life like this? Is God punishing me for something?" I was recently looking at the Sound of Music because we're we're doing the play at our kids' school next year, and it struck me with the song about um, there's a kind of the the whole idea of of being good, you know, that you know no, nothing. Comes from nothing, you know. I even in my deepest childhood, there must have been. I must have done something good. There's this idea that only by do it by Maria doing good in her life was she able to score this awesome husband, you know, as she always dreamed of. Although maybe you know, as a nun, that wasn't quite expected. But what did she do that turned out so that life was so good? Must have been something good. And we have that view of the scriptures. We have that view of life. That why have I lost my job? Why have I got cancer? Why have my kids' marriages separated? Why is my financial life in a mess? Why, 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 why? It must have been because I did something bad. Or likewise, if everything goes to plan, you're having a ripper a year, everything's great, you think, deeper, even in my deepest childhood, I must have done something good. Friends, that's not the way it works with God. It's not the way it works with the world. It certainly wasn't the case with Joseph that he would be ending up there in prison thinking, oh, what have I done to deserve this? Nothing. Or Jesus, I'm on the cross, what have I done to deserve this? Nothing. And yet God used that evil to bring about good. As the uh, people heard this in verse 37 of Acts 2, we read that they were cut to the heart and Peter and the other apostles said, brothers, what shall we do? Well, the reply was, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, when you recognise that Jesus is the mighty, mighty King, God made him the boss of everything, as we sang last night and during the week, when we realise this, the most obvious thing to do is to acknowledge him as King. I mean, surely... Now, if you had been there when you saw him in his kingliness, as he walked on the water, as he turned a kid's lunch into a feast that would cater for twenty thousand people, including all the kids and parents. When you see this sort of lordship, surely the only thing you could do is to bow down and worship the king. It just seems completely obvious. And yet that is not the case for many. People say, I don't respect Jesus as king. He's only one of many ways, or maybe he's just a myth or a story that's convenient in trying to explain things, but not one that's going to intersect with my own life. Friends, the most obvious thing to do when you see Jesus as King is to acknowledge him as King, and to repent, and to turn to him. And I'm delighted to know that, that within our church we have so many people who have done just that, and have the complete confidence that certainty for eternity Because when you say to Jesus, you are king, you can know it for certain that you will remain safe in his hands for life. And we also read that he will give us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit enables us to keep knowing him, keep loving him, keep serving him. And his Holy Spirit brings us together also as we gather for church, which is such an important part of our life. Because, quite frankly, if we didn't have church, then how would you keep going? It is such a gift for us to have church to keep us persevering. Well, it was a great joy over this last week to present these stories of Joseph and so on to the kids. Uh, You could see that they got it. You could see that they realised that even though bad things had happened to Joseph, it didn't mean that God was out of control. And in fact, the bad things brought good. And then we also talked about Jesus. And we showed how the bad things that happened to Jesus actually brought good. And that is something for us to all hold on to. I remember learning that when I was only a young kid, about 10 years of age, it all sunk into me. And I'm thankful to God that I've spent these years between then and now knowing that Jesus is King and trusting in him as Lord and Saviour. Friends, let us remember that even when plans don't go as we had hoped, it doesn't mean that God's out of control. For indeed, he is the ruler of the world, the loving ruler of the world, And he is fully trustworthy and worthy of us submitting to him, repenting and following him all our days. Let me pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the confidence we have that your plans will come true. And even if they seem out of control, we know they're not. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we would trust in you in the good times and the bad times, and that we, as we see Jesus as King, that we would bow down to him as Lord.